Like many of you, I'm curious about several topics, and what better way to learn than to speak directly with the people who have the answers that you're looking for? My name is Costa. Welcome to Founder Views. That's what this channel is all about. You're going to hear me pick the brains of thought leaders, CEOs, politicians, and business experts about subjects that I'm thinking about or working on at any given time. From economics, business, real estate investing, Bitcoin, lifestyle, politics, and much, much more. Thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. So look, the, the Freedom Convoy and that whole movement is, I think, a, a truly historic part of Canada's history, you know, no matter what your perspective or opinion uh, of it was. Yeah. So why was it so meaningful for you personally to get involved the way you did, it, just being the spokesperson for this convoy and, and ultimately being one of the, the main faces of the entire movement? There's the, well, there's two versions of it. There's, there's the short version that Tamara called me and asked me, and I have a truck. And I just had to start using the ArriveCan app. But then there's a long version. And the long version is this. I had a business on uh, downtown on Ryerson U University's campus for many years. And I saw the change culturally into this uh, neo-progressive, postmodernist extremism uh, occur within the student body on campus and occur within the faculty. Uh, you know, there was a complete, it was a completely different world. Uh, five years apart and it really started in 2012 that's when it really ramped up and you saw a lot of this stuff online around Gamergate and all this you know progressive stuff um, I eventually sold that business just I couldn't deal with it anymore it was uh, it was starting to grind at me and you know we're getting students that were communists coming in why do I have to pay uh, this should be for free I'm a university student like wow. get out of here um, so yeah, I saw that shift for many, many years. And then I started uh, producing podcasts, something I always wanted to do, met a very, very famous podcaster, who was friends with my ex, uh, who was a YouTuber. And uh, one thing led to another went down this sort of rabbit hole and uh, ended up working with St Professor Stephen Hicks, who uh, wrote Explaining Postmodernism. Uh, if you don't know the name, when Jordan Peterson references postmodernist theory, He's usually referencing Stephen Hicks. So that's Open College with Stephen Hicks, who bought the book yesterday and sent me a message and said, I can't wait to read it. And um, that, was, that was a great feeling. And so, yeah, it was just a whole cultural change. And it just culminated when Tamara, I mean, all the, the last two years of the lockdown stuff, that is, uh, that's crazy nonsense as far as I'm concerned. Completely unacceptable in a liberal democracy, uh, you know, or, uh, you know, British common law, Commonwealth society that's completely um, in contravention with uh, the values of individualism. And, uh, you know, Tamara called me one day and said, listen, we're starting a convoy is on January 15th. We did a GoFundMe. It's gotten very popular within just within a day. I need someone to help me with messaging and PR, public relations, uh, you know, uh, pressers, all that sort of stuff. And uh, yeah, of course, you know, because it was it was many years of building up to that moment and thought, well, here is our chance uh, to do something, but to do it in a peaceful manner. Uh, I, I didn't know that about your background um, at Ryerson. So I went to Ryerson myself. Uh, what business did you have there? I had a printing business. So we okay. had um, we were. We did mainly like graphic, high-end graphics, so interior design, architecture drawings, uh, portfolios for the fashion students, uh, all that sort of stuff. We didn't do any like books or whatever. And um, so 
I was in a position where I was uniquely tapped into, especially in the interior design and the arts uh, departments that would come in, that tend to lean uh, very much towards that, that the postmodernist end of the political spectrum. But it just got out of control. Like I would see students, we'd get to know them over four years because they would be coming into us for all their projects and portfolios and, you know, uh, their theses and whatever. And, you know, they, they come in completely normal at a high school and they would leave with uh, green hair and uh, full victimization uh, worldview about everything. Like there are, uh, these are all middle class and upper middle class kids, most of them, most of them, uh, complaining victim status. And it was uh, it was just infuriating. So, yeah. What did you study there? Yeah. Uh, I went to, I graduated in 2010, uh, business, uh, majored in accounting. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Don't do anything related to that now, but yeah. But yeah. Um, so I'm sure there's no way that you could have anticipated that this movement would get as big as it did, like, you know, on a national stage, getting global media attention, dozens of countries around the world starting their own trucker convoys and, and just blowing up the way it did. Uh, I think the first time I actually heard you or heard of you was was in, in the media was on Fox with Tucker Carlson. Okay. Um, you know, I thought you did a great job there, by the way. But thank you. Were were you prepared for that that spotlight? Um, and like, how did you, you know, what was that experience like, and how did you cope with that attention? Um, I mean, I'm pretty. You just for me, I just compartmentalized, and I just looked at it as work. So I didn't really care who I was going on with, where I was, how many people saw. It's just, okay, another interview, I got to get the message out. Because what I was going through, I was trying to do, go with it from like a, a data analytics perspective, which was I know I knew I was in competition with the mainstream media who's just going to call us names. So I needed to put everything I could into getting as many clicks and alternative media as possible. So Tucker Carlson just kind of came about. That wasn't initially part of the... Um, strategy <clears throat> but u.s um legacy media that would be sympathetic i would include in that umbrella of alternative media and in alternative media i didn't always do you know if we want to do the the antiquated left wing right wing uh thing i mean i went on megan murphy's podcast a very well-known uh feminist but because of the the messaging that we put forward <clears throat> And that, uh, you know, I wanted those four pillars, peace, love, unity, and freedom, uh, which is something, you know, I, I explained before in many interviews that that was harkens back to my days of, you know, going to Grateful Dead concerts. Uh, but that message resonated with everybody. So I figured, okay, we'll be able to get as I was going for 100 million clicks the first week and uh, I or 100 million views across multiple platforms, which I knew would just dominate all legacy media. And uh, we got pretty close to it. You know how it is. There's a lot of vagueness, especially with podcasts, with numbers, what's a listen, what isn't a listen. But um, yeah. that was that was the idea. And so we, we didn't know, you know, when Tamara set it up, <clears throat> they thought we would, they would mimic the 2018 convoy they would uh, they're trying to get 20 grand for fuel to get a group of trucks to ottawa to protest and uh, i remember she said to me you know we we need to get the word out i'm like well i can get the word out <laughs> how big do you want it to be <laughs> you can make it big if you want and uh, so i decided just to reach out to absolutely every contact i had to any person who um, had a platform 
for their assistance because, again, this wasn't left or right politics. This was just about freedom. And uh, I knew if we kept that, the mess- that was the messaging, that we'd be able to get people uh, from all over the world supporting it. Yeah, amazing. How, how has your life changed <clears throat> since the Freedom Convoy? If I don't know. Like, <clears throat> I'm pretty grounded. I've known, um, you know, I've known a lot of very famous people for quite a while for just some weird circles that I managed to to meet people at different events and kept in touch with them. Uh, I have a few friends who are, are extraordinarily wealthy uh, who live in the United States, but I you know, I do my own laundry. I cook my own food. I you know I'm, I'm just kind of I don't get swept up in the whole um elite sort of celebrity lifestyle that's not really my thing so much uh as much as some of my friends are into that like that's great it's just not me so my life really hasn't changed all that much uh other than the fact that you know i'm getting sometimes attacked by members of the media sometimes uh, attacked by political operatives um usually on one side of the spectrum but as you saw during my testimony um, getting attacked by people on uh, on the other side of the spectrum as well, because uh, there's certain groups of people that want a political narrative, and I just want the truth, which is why I wrote this book because this yeah. is the truth, right? Love it. So. Yeah, I, I was asking the question more so on like the the professional side of your life, and um, like has has your has, has your jobs changed or what you do for a living or, you know, the, the media attacks? I, I think we could all assume that would, would happen for sure. But has, has your professional life changed at all? I've always been, you know, kind of a, since I, I left. I mean, the last corporate job I had was um, Harley Davidson or was it IAJ? It was since my last corp. It's been a while since I've had a corporate job. And uh, since then, I'd been an entrepreneur, so I kind of make my own path. And now, you know, since I got into trucking, which initially was just as a side hustle uh, to really to maybe build a, a business with my brother when he retires. And uh, it accelerated when all these lockdowns came into place. I decided, you know what, I'll buy a truck now and just start driving into the U.S. just so I can have a few days a week away from the craziness. Um, so that really hasn't affected anything because, um, so basically, you know, the, the, the thing that brought me to trucking was the fact that, you know, I had a family member that was, had this path moving forward out of retirement, thinking to do this as a business. He, he knowing that I've run small businesses before, so it was a good, perfect marriage and I just wanted to get away from all the COVID restrictions. And I never realized the amount of, um, freedom that you have. Uh, you get to explore and see much of the U.S. that you would never see, like going through Trump's, uh, going through towns in New York State where there's Trump flags everywhere in New York State. Like who would have thought, right? Um, so it's been quite, uh, it's been quite good from that respect. And then also in the trucking industry, you don't really get that. Uh, you don't really get affected because you're kind of you're shielded from the woke nonsense. Not that there aren't woke truck companies, there are. But when you're an owner operator uh, like myself and you own your truck, if I have a problem with a carrier because they're woke and they don't want to talk to me, they don't want to deal with me for whatever reason. Okay, I'll just go to another carrier, get a contract with somebody else. And there's a shortage of something like 30,000 truckers in Canada. So it's really kind of a non-factor. So 
what we saw happen to our country and really around the world during COVID made me realize how much I value freedom and free choice and human rights and civil liberties and all these things. And these were things that I think most people living in the West took for granted and never really gave much thought or attention to. And that's one of the main reasons why uh, what made Canada great and, you know, best country in the world to live and uh, purposely use past tense when saying that, because I really don't know if that's still true personally. But um, why do you think there is this clear, just increased desire for government control? And, and why is there this attempt to kind of normalize this overreach and control by governments in our society? This might be controversial, but I don't know that it comes from a state of malice. And that's just because all of my years dealing with people on a university campus who are, you know, on the other end of the political spectrum. Uh, I think it's, for lack of a better term, an unintentional slippery slope that occurs. So you start with these people that have good intentions, they want to help everybody, and they think the government is the tool that's going to help everybody. Now, you and I probably disagree with that. But that's their view. Their view is that, you know, it's not the church it's not the uh, religious institutions in the community that are going to give stability to society. It's the government that's going to replace that, which right away I have a problem with that. But then you mix it with the fact that we live in the age of technology, right? Uh, going back to when James Burke was doing his documentaries in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, when he talked about the coming technological change and how society is going to change, we're living that right now. Uh, so you pair the the idea that people think government can help everybody and lift everybody out of poverty, pair that with the age of technology and big data and data tracking. They're going to look to that as a tool that, well, hey, if we just pair the data tracking to the government, that's going to help lift people out of poverty and make their lives better. I think that's legitimately where they come from. It's not necessarily out of, you know, Dr. Evil wants to take over the world. I, I know a lot of us on this side um, easily, are very easy to uh, fall, become susceptible to that narrative, but I don't think that's true. I think that just people who, it's the government that's going to do it. Now we have technology. If we can do that, then uh, we're going to solve everybody's problems. Unfortunately, uh, I think for those of us who are objectivists and pragmatic and understand human nature, uh, we know that Star Trek is not real, unfortunately. Like, it's great, but that's not a real uh, template for civilization. So I think that's where it comes from. Yeah. Uh, and why are why do you think more people are becoming more reliant on government in general? Like, is it the just the continued deterioration of, of the economy? It's harder for people to get by. I mean, what's what's the root of that reliance on government? I don't know. Philosophically, I think it comes from a state of laziness. And I don't mean that in in the pejorative uh, sense of laziness. I think it's uh, life gets I see this happening with friends in South America. You might have heard me mention in interviews. I've spent a lot of time in South America and I've seen particularly Colombia change over uh, 20 years. And it's a completely different country that it was. And when it gets really safe and things get really stable and human beings um, lack the 
sorry, they have less of the desire or wants in their life, less struggle, um, then you see this shift in human behavior where we all become a little bit more, I don't know, a collectivist in nature just because things become so much more simple and so much more easy. So in the example I just gave in, in Colombia where yeah, I don't have a friend there who doesn't have didn't lose a sibling, a relative, a friend uh, who wasn't murdered at some point by some aspect of the the narcotraficos when they were, you know, basically controlling the country. So it brought families together. They needed to support each other and that's what they needed to survive. So the survival instincts kicks in. But when life becomes so much more easy, there's no more survival. The survival instinct seems to uh, sway to some degree and we shift into the state of oh well now now life is so easy uh, you lose this I don't know this desire mechanism this want mechanism like some of the craziest people I've ever met in my life are the ultra 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 wealthy people some of them uh, some of them are great but some of them go a little cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, if I can use that. And the reason is because when you have all the money in the world, you can buy anything you want. Um, so some of them do extraordinary things like, um, I mean, Elon Musk wasn't at that stage, but he's a good example of somebody who's channeled his energy towards something that he can't buy. And you see that from other people. They will, they'll pick up music uh, they'll pick up other different hobbies they'll learn to like george bush learned how to paint because you can't buy the ability uh to paint but then there's other people that they just they're maybe a little bit more i don't know vapid they don't have the same level of interest of exploring things so then what do they get obsessed with they have to own things that no one else can have they have to have the one unique uh piece of art or whatever it is, that becomes their identity. Oh, and, and they'll talk about it amongst them. It's really funny. They'll talk about how, oh, I own, you know, uh, this car that's one of two in existence. Whereas the rest of us are like, okay, great. I love cars too. I'm a car nut, but I'm glad you own it. I wouldn't want to pay for that, but it is what it is. Or I have this art or I have this property or whatever. And you see this amongst the wealthier class. So I think they divide and go into those uh, two directions, if that kind of explains it. It's just the human nature. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, speaking of buying things and mm. money, uh, CBDCs, why? I mean, I think now more people are realizing this is, you know, reality, uh, of course, or hopefully. Yeah. Uh, why, why, is, why should every single Canadian and every person in the world really be concerned about central bank digital currencies? Well, because there goes your freedom. And we saw that in Ottawa uh, when they could turn off our bank accounts like that instantly, as it happened to me and many other people. And I always preface this with it wasn't just bank accounts. It was bank accounts, credit cards, lines of credit. Uh, any form of transaction was cut off. Um, a CBDC just takes that ability and ramps it up that they can, uh, whoever controls the CBDC can decide what you should spend your money on. So you may have, I don't know, what X number of Canadian, whatever dollars CBDC, and they say, yeah, but you know what? You're a, you're a bad person with dangerous views, so you're not allowed to buy books anymore, right? Like they can really hyper-target 
how money is used. That's that's one of the that's the primary uh, thing, and it's the opposite of what we see. You know, people don't know Bitcoin, and I, I I'm a very soft orange pillar. Like I don't force it on anybody. I'll just mention it. It's the opposite of Bitcoin. Bitcoin is um, the equivalent of the Gutenberg Revolution, or revolution, however you want to refer to it, Reformation, uh, the separation of um, church and state. Well, it's the separation of money and state. So it's the polar opposite of what a CBDC is, which is why it's so important and why it was so um, uh, it was such an asset. And it was the tool that saved so many truckers during the convoy because it's the only way some truckers got some money and it proved its case. Uh, and so CBDCs, when you hear that term, you don't even have to understand what it is. You just have to know every dollar that you have is registered to the government. So there's no more slipping of $50 to, um, to your nanny or to a friend or like the government will see absolutely every transaction. And I think the motivation factors because so many of these governments really are insolvent, insolvent at this point. Um, it allows them to tax any transactions. So if I say cost is, hey, I'm going to send you a hundred bucks because I don't know, you're a good friend or I, I, oh, I borrowed money from you or whatever, then the government can just pose an instant tax on that money on every transaction that you, uh, you've made. Very, very dangerous. Yeah. Extremely dangerous for sure. How do you see the rollout of this CC? happening here in canada of the cbdc yeah i don't think it's gonna happen you don't think it's gonna happen no i think um i mean we're we're gonna we follow the united states the reality is uh the united states which is what 78 percent of our economy uh they from an economic standpoint and the fact that we are their uh, their commodities resource base for so many things uh, we're gonna do what the united states does that's just the reality of what is and most of the world is right um, that's a country that still has not gotten rid of the penny. Like they're, they're so diehard about their, their monetary and financial traditions with the exception of central banks, just because people don't know what a central bank is, which is why they're on their third central bank. Um, but because of that, uh, I don't, I don't see it ever coming. I see them having a full out revolution before that happens. Like you'll see full secession from, from Texas and much of the Midwest. It's just, I don't see that being a practical solution. And then the second thing is, we saw this happen with Venezuela, when Venezuela introduced the Petro, which was a CBDC controlled by the state. So everybody got uh, whatever it was, I don't remember how much money it was, but they got a certain uh, value in bolivars or in dollars, whatever it is. And everybody got it and said, great, <laughs> instantly converted into US dollars. And the boulevard tanked, uh, sorry, the Petro tanked immediately. So um, at the end of the day, it's another example of how uh, governments and people on one side of the, the political spectrum don't understand human behavior. Uh, so I've, I've always been uh, one to, like, obviously exercise my democratic right to vote, right? But yeah. the last provincial election was the first time uh, I didn't vote since I could remember. And, yeah. uh, you know, nothing I'm proud of, but, you know, it is what it is. I just had no desire to, to vote whatsoever. Like my, my trust in government, government leaders has totally evaporated. So I just didn't really see a point. But where do you see the future of Canadian politics and 
Um, is government the only way to turn this country around or, or can the power be given back to the people? I think people need to reset their, you know, their philosophical worldview of politics and come to this realization that they work for us. And it's really funny how we've switched into this state where the, uh, the political class feels so entitled that they're going dict to us, dictate to us how we think, feel, what we believe, all that sort of stuff. And so much of it is scripted. So the first thing is we need to communicate to people that public servant means servant. And we need to start using that word regularly just to kind of push them down a few notches, just to remind them of mm -hmm. that, right? Uh, I think it's going to be a generational change. This is not a change that's going to happen uh, overnight. You know, I'm friends with this, um, this guy. Uh, his name is Imam Tawhidi. And he, Imam Tawhidi is very uh, big in drawing attention to some of the uh, more dangerous elements in his community, right? And as he said, this is not going to be uh, fixed with pressing a button. This is going to take 100 years. It's not going to be solved in his lifetime. Uh, but it's something that they actively work on with his, when, within his community to try to fix. So I get that. And I think it's the same for us on the political landscape. One of the other problems we have is kind of the corporatization of politics in Canada and many, many countries, which has allowed the transition to occur. It's really complicated and esoteric to go through all the backgrounds behind the scenes, how it all works, which lobby firms are controlling which parties while well, controlling all the parties and why they do it and who the characters are. And you saw a, a little taste of that in my testimony. And that's why you see the Uniparty in the um, in the hearing has coming to the same conclusion that they're trying to brainwash everybody else in Canada with. The liberals want want to explain that uh, their justification and their per world their view of the freedom convoy is it was Mad Max, right? <laughs> it was Mad Max, people dying, hanging from the rafters. It was craziness and uh, just crime everywhere. It was like Chaz in uh in portland like that's what they want to convince yeah. canadians of but then the other problem is the conservative side or the side that's supposed to be supporting us at least in this in, in, in this um you know initially in this uh event uh, they're coming out and saying oh yeah it was peaceful in the beginning but it got out of hand like no no it never got out of hand it got out of hand when the police came and brought violence and i was the single person in my testimony to explain that. And that's why some people got really angry at me and some lawyers lost their temper because they're part of the political establishment. That's, you know, the, the ideas are supposed to be helping the truckers and the convoy. And they're not, they're not. They're, pro they're promulgating a narrative from the political class that doesn't want to have to talk about the freedom convoy and the issues surrounding the freedom convoy into any elections moving forward. And I am not going to allow that. I am never going to shut up about this. And they just keep making it worse by trying to promulgate this lie. It's horrible. Yeah, no, it really is. Uh, I, li I like what you said earlier, though, about um, the, the power of language and using simple things like servants, like they're these government officials, they're, they're servants of the people. And I think the you know, the, the power of language, small things like that compounded um, will can make a difference. But like, I agree with you. This is going to take uh, this is generational stuff for sure. Yeah.
Um, so your book, I want to talk about your book quickly. It was released November 11th, Honking for Freedom. Uh, I just ordered my copy last night, by the way. So very awesome. excited to read it. Great. Um, so what, what can readers expect to get out of this book? I think a couple of things. First, they're going to get the... Um... They're going to get a lot of additional insight into what was going on in Ottawa and what we were dealing with as uh, organizers trying to herd the cats together, getting all the different groups to come on the same side. And uh, we didn't I didn't get too much into the nitty gritty of what organizations were making my and Tamara's lives completely miserable. <laughs> it was and it really affected Tamara. I don't really care. I just told them, you know. Tamara was trying to be, you know, nice to everybody who was trying to be aggressive with us. And I just said, no, we're not doing that. That was kind of my attitude. Um, but we didn't get too much into that. I wanted this to be the positive story, all the good stuff. That's why, you know, for the cover, when I found uh, Luciano's uh, Instagram account, and started going through his pictures because I was looking for good, solid images of what went on. I found this amongst his library once he opened it to me. And, well, that's what it's about. It's about people, and the trucks are secondary. That's what we're trying to communicate, and it's all about mm. love and coming together. And that's that's the the tenor of, of the book. It's just the story of the people. Not I'm not even in every chapter. We did so many interviews. Uh, John Goddard, who did the book with me, was um, an investigative journalist uh, for decades and then uh, became a published author, and he still does some research and stuff on the side. And his skills were invaluable in putting together the timeline. Because for me, I don't, man, I didn't know which day was which day. Every day was crazy. It was one day yeah. would flow into the next one of well, a problem after problem. But uh, so you get a lot of additional context into what happened there. But also, I want it to be a tool for everybody who has, we all have people in our families and amongst our friends who we just can't talk about politics because they're just so to the other side, regurgitating mainstream media talking points not understanding that their opinions are primed to them and uh, we need a way to communicate to them that's why if you've gone to honkingforfreedom.com and you've looked at the promo video there's footage from on the ground right in front of you so you can see it you can see what a loving environment that uh, the convoy was so those are the two things we wanted to do is to be able to you know if ever, anybody decides to buy an extra copy and just accidentally leave it at their friend or relative's home <laughs> who is against the convoy. Um, yeah. That sort of thing is what I'm trying to do with it. And I, hopefully it will work. I like it. I like it. That's amazing. Um, really excited to read it myself for sure. And uh, BJ, I just want to thank you, man, for, for the time here. I, I want to apologize to you and your audience for, for all these hiccups here. And uh, I want to take you up on your your offer for a, for a part two. Uh, I really sure. want to do this right um, very soon. But well, why uh, don't we do it after you read the book? Oh, perfect, great idea. Right. Let's do it. Yeah, I love it. Okay, cool. um, yeah. Other than that, man, I just want to uh, thank you again for your time. Um, like I said, this is uh, you know what you were a part of. I think is is historic. Uh, this is something you know. My kids are going to look back on as one of these staple moments in our history, I believe. So, um, you know, thank you for that. And we'll, we'll definitely be in touch. Well, I feel like and I think a lot of us feel this way. Uh, I feel completely blessed to have having had the opportunity 
to be a part of this. And, you know, my role was try to bring people together through positive messaging and to focus on all the good things in life. And this is why when I do my daily live streams, I focus on, uh, the, on acknowledging the freedoms that we have and working on expanding them in the future in a peaceful manner. Because life is really good. We are the most privileged generation living in the most privileged time in our in human history. Despite all the noise around the side, around the background of politics, yeah. we are all very fortunate and we, we, we need to appreciate that. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Uh, perfect way to end this. BJ, thanks again. Uh, we'll, we'll definitely touch. All right, brother. Thanks.